This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action. Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We are Channel 111, the three ones, triple ones. Huh? That's really all I can say about that. That's not much more to say. Well, I'm Jeff Klein. That's Ann Greenhall. Greenhall. Yeah. yeah. Ahead. Right? And we're, we run the uh, McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School. <laughs> that is our calling. That's our calling. <laughs> it is a calling. Right? It is a bit of a calling, Jeff. It's a... Uh, it's more than a career. Yes. It's definitely more than a job. That's right. All right. So so here we are responding to the calling. <laughs> That's right. And so we wanted to highlight our annual leadership conference mm-hmm. and, and really focus on two of our speakers, right? The first is Kat Cole, who is the president and chief operating mm-hmm. officer at Focus Brands, right? And, and most people, I think, would say, uh, Focus Brands, I, I'm not really sure what that is. We'll talk more about that, and Kat will as mm-hmm. well. While you may not know the parent company, you certainly know many of the uh, the brands within Focus right. Brands. So maybe I'll say a word or two about Kat, and then we'll head right into her uh, her remarks. She is, as I said, Kat Cole, uh, President and Chief Operating Officer at Focus Brands North America. Um, within Focus Brands, you've got uh, six domestic franchise companies, right? And I think our, our listeners will be familiar with all of these. So we have Cinnabon, which mm-hmm. is where Cat uh, worked for a number of uh, and still works. Um, we have Auntie Anne's, Moe's, Schlotzky's, <laughs> McAllister's, mm-hmm. and Carvel, home of, uh, what is that ice cream whale? What was his name? <laughs> right? Wasn't there, a, wasn't there a whale from Carvel? I always think of the birthday cakes at Carvel. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of them is Fudgy the Whale. <laughs> that could is be. It possibly Fudgy the <laughs> Whale? Could be. All right, well, <laughs> Maybe but, one of our listeners will let us know. I don't remember Set getting straight. into that. Um, she's a young global leader at the World Economic Forum. She's a member of the UN Global Entrepreneurs Council. She was featured on CBS's Undercover Boss. Named one of Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 and one of CNBC's Next 25 list of innovators, leaders, and disruptors. So um, she was an absolute trip. Um, mm-hmm. Serial nonconformist, as we said. And, and so her story of moving from Hooters waitress at 18 to a restaurant executive by 26 and a global chain president by 31 is often shared as an example of the American and entrepreneurial dream. So here is Kat Cole. I'll give you a little bit of an overview of what I do today for context of its complexity. It's actually quite a simple, low-tech business. We sell food, but nothing is a simple, low-tech business today because the consumer is high-tech, because the supply chain infrastructure is enabled by technology, because independent entrants into the market are rapidly enabled by technology. So what's interesting about running traditionally low-tech businesses in this environment is there is much more discomfort than there is in other industries that might be used to technological infrastructure, just with the pace of change. So we sell food, but we're a franchise model. And if you're not familiar with the franchise model, it essentially means 
that we bring to market a brand that must stand for something consistent with relatively consistent products, but that is grown in a decentralized way with other people's capital. And what that means is I cannot lead by command and control. Everything must be accomplished through influence. You heard we have six brands. We grow by acquisition. We're hopefully going to acquire a seventh soon. Over 6,000 locations, 60 countries, 60,000 employees, and 1,500 franchisees that are my business partners. So if any of you are entrepreneurs or work with owners that have business partners, maybe they have a few business partners. Maybe they have a board of eight people or nine or 15. I have 12 to 1,500 that I need to get to agree in order to get almost anything done in the organization. And what that has created inherently and intuitively and organically is an incredibly strong muscle of leading through influence. The old muscle of command and control is, I won't say useless. In some industries, in some countries, in some cultures, it has its place. But certainly, and you're going to hear this when you hear from the author of New Power, the shift to leading through influence, collaboration, and finding what I like to call the coalition of the willing to create change instead of trying to force people to change is what comes naturally in franchising. So some of the things that I'll share we've been able to do, you might think, well, how did you know to do that? What book, what class? Franchising. It's what trains the muscle. Because when I go to them, let's say you're my franchisees and I need to launch a new innovation that helps us be relevant. I need you to reinvest capital into your stores to be able to compete in the marketplace. You don't have to by the contract. You've just invested millions of dollars. It might be your entire life savings and your entire plan for your family's future. And I'm asking you to double down. In an uncertain environment, with increasing threats of competition, when you don't have to. But the only way for me to grow is if you grow. It's an interesting model that has created a different set of practices, beliefs, uh, guidelines, and certainly challenges that I think those lessons will serve all of us well into the future. So that's Focus Brands. Uh, we are private equity owned, and so while I don't have to deal with the public markets, I have a different type of uh, goals, <laughs> if you will, providing growth and return. And we have been held for 17 years, and so my private equity firm did long hold before long hold was cool. And we've been able to really dig in and build brands and continue our acquisition strategy. Some of the interesting lessons within my most recent roles actually came from my role at Cinnabon. So instead of focusing on the broader portfolio company, and by the way, we're gonna take questions at the end. So if you have any questions about the portfolio company or any of this work, if I can legally answer it, I will. Uh, I was president of Cinnabon a few roles back. And what's interesting about Cinnabon as a business model is it is almost exclusively located in malls and airports in all 60 countries where we do business, with few exceptions. When I took over, it was the end of 2010. If you're familiar with the end of 2010, it was still, well, it was the end of the recession, but you don't know it's the end until you're out of the end. And so I took over the company that is exclusively located in malls and airports during the recession. And when there is a recession and a compression on discretionary income, there are two things people do not do. They do not shop and they do not travel, which means they were not spending money in our businesses. We had three years of high single-digit, and in some cases, high double-digit comp store sales declines. If you are a new franchisee that had just joined our company years before, you likely didn't have the capital reserves to sustain that type of revenue decline. And if you're a tenured franchisee, 
maybe you could sustain it, but you certainly weren't investing, reinvesting, spending the money you should to do the right thing by the business. And so when I took over the business at the end of 2010, it was, as we say, a hot mess. The stores were old, the franchisees were defeated, no one was growing, and oh, by the way, access to capital had completely dried up. So not only were our organic sales not growing, but our units were not growing because no one had access to capital to go build new buildings. And if you're a bank, the last entrepreneur you're going to loan money to is someone who's new to business and wants to open up a place in a mall. And so I was faced with no growth, no ability to improve operations, and a set of franchise partners, investors, business partners who honestly had a deficit of belief. It was a crisis of confidence in the business model and in the business environment. But what we still had was a beloved brand, what many companies would beg to have. The consumer loved us, had incredibly fond and deep emotional connection to the memories they had with our business. And coming in, I realized that's something that we could leverage. So a few things occurred. First, I spent nothing but 60 days working in the businesses, rolling rolls, taking out trash. And from a leadership perspective, we often hear, stay close to the people, right? Go to where the action's happening. But often, leaders interpret that incorrectly. And they go in, and they shake hands, and they kiss babies, and they're visible, and everyone sees them, and we feel good about ourselves, and then we leave. That's not what works in any environment. It's not what works today. It's not what will work tomorrow. And it's not what I did. You have to be there long enough to see the truth. Work entire shifts, entire weeks. Don't graze the surface. Go deep in a few places in the business. I've done it my entire career. And ask a few questions to many people in a short amount of time, and patterns emerge. And here are some questions I recommend and questions I ask to our employees, our managers, and our customers. One is, when do we have to say no? This is relevant for any industry. When do we have to say no? The relevance of that question is, what is the consumer or employee, if that's who's asking, what are they actually telling us we have credibility to deliver, but we aren't? Maybe it's an opportunity in the marketplace. And for Cinnabon, there were a few things that came out very clearly. Smaller portions. No brainer, right? <laughs> there are lots of reasons why this didn't happen. Coffee. Makes sense, intuitive, many good reasons why this didn't happen. So many answers came up, but I looked for the patterns, not the exceptions. Bless you, not the one-off. And so I was able to have a roadmap of what to take action on as a leader, not by a report an executive gave me, not by a plan the board asked me to have, by what consistently in a compressed amount of time the consumers, the employees, and the owners made it very clear were the opportunities in the business. The second question is the opposite side of resources, which is, what do we throw away? Now, in a physical product business, this is a very easy question to ask. What do we throw away? What is the consumer throwing away? But you can ask it more broadly for any industry, which is, what are we doing that the consumer doesn't value? What are we making, investing resources in that is just not being appreciated? Because we could redeploy those resources into something else. Is it packaging? Is it product? Is it a menu offering? Is it something we do with the employees? Is it a schedule or a technology? When you have little to no budget, which is what I had, little to no marketing, which is what I had, depressed sales, and a deflated franchise system, you don't have a lot of resources to muscle your way through. You actually need to get to the things that are going to get traction quickly. 
because of the challenge of the time, we were forced to do only the things that would show results. We did not have the paradox of choice because we didn't have the resources to squander. So I found a few things that we did throw away, that the consumer did throw away. We increased our profit margins because we just stopped doing things that the consumer maybe cared about. This was a 30-year brand, by the way, 30-year-old brand. Maybe they cared about it 20 years ago. And we just kept doing it. But over time, they just started throwing it away. We started seeing them throw product away and utensils away and things that we would give them. And it just takes someone to pay attention. But if you're only paying attention in one store or briefly for a moment, you don't realize what a deep and expensive pattern it is. And someone has got to go deep in the system to have pattern recognition to help with prioritization of initiatives. And so we made a, a few simple changes. And by the way, the third question is, what would you do if you were me? Pretty simple. If you ran the business, what's one thing you would do to make things more awesome? And you ask it genuinely, open-heartedly. And it was so funny, the things that people said consistently. I love this line. You hear this uh, often socially. Out of the mouths of babes comes the truth. And store after store, country after country, it didn't matter if it was airports or malls or convenience stores, they would tell me things like, we have these blended drinks called chiladas, and um, they used to be so delicious, but now they suck and no one buys them. Why do they suck, I asked. The franchise owners, there was a reason. As the recession started to prolong, we were looking for areas to improve margin. And so we looked for cheaper ingredients. And cheaper ingredients led to a lower butterfat, butter is the most expensive thing in a food business, led to a lower butterfat, lower dairy mix, lower fat, which gave it lower calories that also made it yucky. The franchisees knew it. The founder of Cinnabon was the president of the Franchise Advisory Council and agreed to this. Because sometimes we are blinded by the immediacy and the fear of a situation. It's like staring into the sun. And the best of people make quite poor decisions when they are afraid. And we lacked the leadership to say, it's scary. Here's how we're going to work together to do it. Don't be afraid. See through it. Sometimes the only way out is through. And because of that, so many short-term decisions were made by and with key stakeholders that progressively removed our relationship with the consumer and certainly set us many steps back for when the marketplace would open where we were not in a position to be competitive. And that was the beautiful situation that I took over. But the nice thing was the roadmap to solutions, at least the first few, was quite clear. Bring back the high quality ingredients and tell people about it. Go to a smaller portion, which we did. Sales increased 10% with no cannibalization, with traffic decline still being between 2 and 5% in malls. We increased our capture rate by simply appealing to what the consumer wanted and listened. And it didn't cost much, except my time and energy as a leader. All those things seem so simple, and me saying it in a few moments is um, quite an inaccurate portrayal of what it took to get it done. Because when I went to franchisees and said, I want you to pay more for an ingredient, but you can't charge more. And in fact, I want you to sell something smaller, which is actually half the price of the thing that you sell today. How would you feel? I'm basically, on the surface, if you're not thinking through the bigger picture, saying, in the short term, I want you to make less on the thing you're already selling. And I want you to sell for less 
something that will compete with the thing that you're selling more for. And that, that fear of trade down, is what kept good independent business owners, some sophisticated, some not, from making the right decision for the business over time. So as a leader, how does one influence a group that doesn't have to do what you say to make those decisions? There are three approaches. First was confront the status quo. I just drew a line that started at the top left of a whiteboard and moved all the way down to the bottom right. I did not need the slope to be much more accurate than that. That is the path we were on. It was obvious, and continuing to do the same thing was certainly not going to alter that trajectory to the positive. So confronting reality actually has to be done verbally eye to eye, so we, we agree we're in this situation. It, I call it an autopsy without blame. How did we get here, what are we doing, and we must do something different. The next is to provide a compelling alternative. And then the third is to not spend energy trying to get everyone to agree because they won't, there's a reason we're here in the first place, is to focus on the coalition of the willing. I found a few franchise owners that saw the bigger picture, I solved for their risk, I financially made it attractive for them to move. I didn't have to emotionally move them, but I needed to financially secure them. They made the move, they took in the more expensive ingredients, they sold the smaller portions, they demonstrated the sales lift, and all of a sudden the rest of the system, when they saw the results, were pulling for this instead of me and my team spending our energy pushing the initiatives. And this is such a simple example in such a low-tech business, but the thinking, the philosophy, the prioritization, and the approach apply to the most complex situations. And I've applied them in far more complex situations. And so now we had a few wins on our hands. Franchisees were feeling good and I had built some trust. So that was driving organic growth in a still depressed uh, revenue environment. But one of the other ways we had to grow our business was through improved points of distribution. I needed to grow units. There was still no access to capital. So just like we shrank the product to grow, we shrank the business model to grow, the entire business model. Instead of $30,000 in franchise fees, five. Instead of 800 square feet, 50 square feet. Instead of 600,000 in sales, 80,000 in sales. We created a little tiny version of the business and I faced the same fear of trade down with our owners as I did with our franchise business, which was why would I go offer a smaller franchise to the market when they're already paying all of this? And the answer, of course, is because the population of people who can afford the big thing is shrinking. The population of people who can afford the little thing is growing. It is the way to get the foot in the door. No matter what product or service you sell, this applies. But we have to have courage to shrink to grow. It can be scary, but someone has to show the path to grow. We shrink the product. We shrank the business model. And as the marketplace opened up, those who bought the small product and the small franchise had a great opportunity and a great connection. And as the market opened, they traded up and bought more with us and invested in larger franchises. It was a successful path to growth. It was dealing with the reality we were in and not trying to muscle our way through with the machine that we built that worked only in a previous time. But the courage in leadership the emotional conversations that have to be had when you're dealing with 1,200 people's life savings invested is quite an experience, as you can imagine. Another way that we grew was what I like to call co-opetition. I don't believe many people can make it in business and win over time alone. And so there are ways to win by finding unexpected allies in business to drive sales, build your brand, 
get your foot in the door, get a halo effect of a, a characteristic or something you're trying to build credibility in, call it co-branding, whatever you want to call it. We knew we owned something special with our brand, but we, after 30 years, only had 1,600 points of distribution in 60 countries. I wasn't going to double that in two years. And so we realized that we had an ability to launch a multi-channel business. And the challenge with going multi-channel is that they are innovation lines of business. They work differently with different selling cycles, with different timelines, with very different stakeholders. But I still have a core legacy business, my franchisees, that I must answer to. And running those businesses as an ecosystem is the right way. But many leaders are compelled to run them as silos, to protect people from each other to keep them apart so there isn't fear. But the right way to build a branded business, whether it's a house of brands or a portfolio, is to run it as an ecosystem. So all from the beginning understand their role in the ecosystem. That one doesn't take from the other, but rather it's a symbiotic relationship. And we struggled with that. Many franchisors do. We're one of the best at it today. We're the fourth largest food and beverage licensor, not franchisor, licensor, partnered products and other channels in the world. And that is impressive considering we are a franchise business at our core, where franchisees don't like their branded products being sold in grocery stores and hotel chains and other places. But we found a way to do it with integrity in a way that elevates our brands. It is accretive ubiquity. But it's not easy. And my biggest leadership failure to date came while growing a multi-channel business. I do believe I've learned in so many times over that the skill sets that describe the most capable humans, including leaders, is simply a balance of two buckets. On one hand, humility and curiosity. On the other hand, courage and confidence. Over-indexing too much on one without the other leads to predictable, suboptimal outcomes. If you're just courageous and confident, you're a bull in a china shop, and you will get things done, but no one will follow you over time. And if you're only curious and humble, you're just a student, Usually when I'm speaking here at Wharton, I have to say no offense. Um, you're just a student and you won't get anything done. The blend of the two, the optimal blend, it's harmony, there's never a perfect balance, is what drives the most optimal results in leadership. And in the case of evolving these brands and making changes and leading the private equity firm down a path of innovation, I had an experience where I over-indexed on humility. I'm typically, or up until recently, the only woman in the room. Most of the time I was in executive positions. As you heard, I was in my late 20s or 30s. So I was with people in the boardroom who had been in business longer than I had been alive, literally. And I would often ask myself this question, who am I to question them? Out of such respect, out of such deference for others that had more experience than me, I would often, in the early days, silence my thoughts. I would say what I wanted to say many times over in my head to make sure it was the right thing, that it was worth being said. I would spend the energy that should have been spent on the business in trying to just bring forward the best, most acute version of myself and what needed to happen. And that is unfortunate when you think about the return we're trying to get on all of our employees and business, that energy is spent on anything other than just getting the business done. But it is the truth when you are the disruptor, when you are the innovator, when you are the first, when you are the only, whatever it is, that is what happens. It's emotional labor. And so I went into this new role as the president of Cinnabon at the age of 31, having grown up in international business my entire life, 
but new in this role, with deep respect for those that were in the business that came before me. And uh, an initiative occurred in the business. I described it to the franchisees. It was a multi-channel product being launched in grocery. I told them what it was. They didn't like it, but they were okay with it because it was differentiated from the format of what they sold in their franchise business. And then three days after I told them this, I got an email from the founder of Cinnabon, who was the president of the FAC, and it was simply a note in font size 90, three letters, whiskey, tango, foxtrot, question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation, 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 and he just pushed on the exclamation point for many lines, WTF. This is a very mild-mannered man, and so this was out of character for him. And you know the feeling when you look in the rearview mirror and you see police lights? If you don't, I do. It's not a good feeling. Um, I knew something had gone wrong. I wasn't sure what I had done, but I was sure that I had some part in it because this is a good person who wouldn't be freaking out for no reason. So I get on the phone. His name is Greg. I get on the phone with Greg right away, and he proceeds to yell, uh, also very uncharacteristic of him. He called me a liar, a corporate hack, and said I was just like everyone else, and I would be hearing from his lawyer before he even told me what happened. And then he said, check your email. And he sent a picture of the retail product that I had just communicated that we launched in a national grocery chain that was supposed to be smaller and in a round pan and differentiated from their product that had become exactly what they sell in their business. And so what it looked like to him is it was a bait and switch. I lied or I altered the truth just to get them to be calm about it and then slipped in a selfish, slimy, corporate, commercial, revenue opportunity that competed with them. Of course, that was not the case, but you can respect his perspective and that of all the franchisees that were now talking to each other behind the scenes. Innovation always outpaces regulation. Launching new lines of business will never be fully supported by the systems you have in place. We failed to have the communication systems and the checks and balances that would have caught the fact that this new channel actually allowed the end retailer to make it in kind of any format they wanted because we just sent them ingredients and recipes. Very different from our partnership with Pillsbury where it takes two years to innovate anything and get it on a shelf. It's a different channel. Sales cycle was completely different, and we failed to change our systems to solve for it. That was a huge failure, but the bigger failure was mine. In the days after my announcement, I saw a few things, packaging, a few things floating around the, the office that I thought, that doesn't look like the thing I told them, or that, that looks different, but I had that thought, who am I to question them? Right? No one would do anything intentionally that would cause disruptive foundational trust issues that would blow up the entire business. No one would do that except a salesperson. <laughs> and in fact, that is what happened. But the failure of leadership, as I said, was mine, because I had the humility to ask, who am I, to question them. But I did not have the courage to answer it, which is, you are the president, and if you don't ask the questions, no one will. And because I failed to ask the questions, it was able to commercialize and we ended up where I just described. An extreme failure of leadership. Outside of losing life, I don't think there are things that are worse than losing trust. It's horrible emotionally, personally, professionally for the team because you can't hide it. And in a franchise system, they let everyone know. <laughs>
And so, what do you do? I very quickly got on the phone with everyone. The messier the thing is, by the way, the more you should show up. And so I called every one of them one-on-one. -on -one. I flew to them. I brought them on our dime to fly into the business, let them yell and vent, and said three things. What happened shouldn't have happened, and I screwed up. They wanted someone's you-know-what. They wanted a piece of someone's rear end to blame because it was emotional. That wasn't going to solve anything. And I let them know it was my fault. They didn't believe it. I was new. I had built great relationships with them. They were looking around. Remember, we're a portfolio company owned by private equity. They thought there was something sinister and commercial happening behind the scenes. So to my credit, I built enough of a relationship that even when I took, um, took the blame, they didn't believe it. But I stood firm and said the failure indeed was mine. No, we didn't have the systems to communicate. Yes, this is a new channel. So first was acknowledging it and fully taking all of the energy so it couldn't get diffused to the rest of the organization, not letting them put that pain and frustration on anyone else. Second was making a decision quickly. And the decision was kill the business. We were making millions of dollars selling 70,000 units a week. The product was right. The price was right. The packaging was right. The partner was right. And in fact, we had the right to do it contractually. We had done nothing wrong contractually, but we didn't do it right. And so I went to them and said, make no mistake, this is not going away because you complained. Let's not train that bad behavior. It is going away because it was the right thing to do and we did it poorly. And my relationship with you is more important than just doing something I have the right to do. And by the way, being owned by a private equity firm with integrity is pretty critical in this story. And when I went to them and said, this is the right thing to do, it will enable my ability to build the business, turn it around, we will get the results in other ways, they didn't blink. They supported me. And so we pulled the product, but I made it clear to them, number three, this is the right way to build this business, distributing products in multiple channels. We will do it again, but we will do it right and we will do it with you. Three months later, I had the opportunity through a lot of sales efforts to put a tiny cinnamon roll in 7,000 Burger Kings, which, by the way, is far more competitive to franchise locations than a fresh-baked grocery store product. And our franchisees, when I went to them with the right systems, the right communication, and the right collaboration, said, we don't love it, but we support you because we know you'll do the right thing. That initiative single-handedly tripled our EBITDA and made the loss of the grocery thing a blip in the past. Doing the right thing for the right reasons certainly always pays, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. And I'm often asked, what are, what are the ways you learn lessons to do things like that, being a first-time president and so new and being so swift? And those lessons come from very unexpected places, one of which is my mom. When I was nine years old, my mom came to me and said, that's it, I'm done we're leaving. And what she meant was we were leaving my father. My father was and is a very good man, but at the time was an alcoholic and a terrible husband and father. And when I reflect on leadership lessons, I think most of them have come from constant change. If you think of my history being a pretty serious nonconformist, doing things that are unpopular that others wouldn't do, probably in part because I was the youngest and I was the only. I was naive enough to not worry about assimilation. 
I was naive enough to believe that I needed to drive results to win. I wasn't going to get it on my status or my experience alone. I actually had to impress people with outcomes. And that motivation will keep you from assimilating and will drive nonconformity. And I got to see the ultimate nonconformist, my mom. When she came to me and said we were leaving at the age of nine, I did not cry. I did not get upset. I looked at her and said, what took you so long? At the age of nine. The business lesson in that is that the people who are closest to the action know what the right thing to do is long before the leader does. The trick in leadership is compressing the amount of time between they know and when you know, and then doing something about it. Because those that are close to the action lack two critical things. They lack the language to articulate the problem, the solution, or the opportunity, and they lack the authority to do something about it. But we have both of those things. And so we left. Interestingly, the very thing my mother feared, my reaction, my fear, my tears, never came. What's funny is sometimes when we break out of conformity, my mom was being reinforced to stay in this relationship because we had a nice house, my dad had a nice job, and the rest of both of our families were very poor. So it looked good from the outside. She was being asked and encouraged to assimilate, to stay. And finally, she said, yes, things could be worse, and so I'm grateful. But just because things could be worse does not mean I don't have the right, and in the case of being a leader, the obligation to break out and make things better. She asked herself that question, if not me, who, if not now, when? If I don't take the kids out of this scenario, when will I? Or who will? Think about the answers to those questions. And how does that apply to the decisions we make every day? The ability to break out and just stop doing something, even though we've been doing it for years. By the way, I was in three car accidents. By the time I was nine, this was not a new problem. She was in it. She assimilated. She stayed for a while, but then finally broke out. Just because you've been doing something away for years or decades doesn't mean tomorrow you can't change. It might freak people out. You should probably facilitate that transition a little bit and help them understand what's going on. But you can change tomorrow. And this is evidenced by every decision my mother made. And I just got to see this as a leadership example, and it became me. We did leave. She fed us on a food budget of $10 a week for three years. I started working at a young age. At 17, as you heard, I was a Hooters hostess. I became a Hooters waitress, rocking the orange shorts and serving wings when I was 18 years old. Started traveling around the world, opening franchises at 19, and by 26 was vice president of the company doing 800 million in revenue. And I stayed there growing the business around the world, launching airlines, building a completely vertically integrated business, dealing with all kinds of interesting challenges and opportunities, and all of the judgment, by the way, that came along in some communities and circles with working with that business. I worked at Hooters, yet I was the chair of the board of the Largens Women's Development Organization in private enterprise in the country. We ran the largest women's development organization within our company and had the largest tuition reimbursement program for women in the country, this tiny little restaurant chain. So funny, people would say, are you in conflict? You're running this concept that is known for socially acceptable female sex appeal, yet you're advocating for women's rights, equality, and doing everything you can to elevate women. Is that in conflict? Not for me. I'm a serial nonconformist. It's the very place we should be doing those things, actually. And if I'm not there, that's definitely not going to happen. I don't believe my role in the world is to preach to the converted. 
Yes, I could go to more progressive businesses. Yes, I could go get hired by a bank or some of these other organizations that look optically like a real job. But they already have people like me. Real change happens from the inside. I believe in bridge people. I like to take my progressive leanings, my intellect, my sense of urgency, my gut and my heart and put it inside of systems that need to be changed. I like to turn Titanics, not go sit on a few fast little boats. There's a place for all kinds of different people in the world and I think there is a more of a need for bridge people today more than ever. There's a role for the extremes and the new and the crazy innovation because it pulls the world forward. It, it is a gravitational pull that's needed, but if you want the world, big teams, big companies to conform, you've gotta have the courage to be on the inside as frustrating as that can be. And it was why I stayed at Hooters for 15 years. And so, I left eventually and ended up running Cinnabon, as you heard. And all along the way, I ended up volunteering in communities around the world, deeply rooting myself in villages in Eastern Africa, learning incredible lessons about entrepreneurship, scrappiness, priorities, getting things done, and what real systemic change looks like. And even though those are lessons in unexpected places and some of these things might sound like uh, a bit of a, a hypocrite or they're in conflict, I view it as just being a serial nonconformist. When I mentor students from this university or others and they ask me, what should I do? I have the privilege of education and I'm just torn what I should do. And I ask them this question. When's the last time you were unpopular? Really unpopular. You need to go be that if you truly want to see what you're made of. When I opened restaurants around the world when I was 19 and 20, the interesting thing about it is every time I landed in a country, I had a new team. I had never met them before, and I had 30 days to open a business and then leave. The beautiful thing about working with different teams every single time you have to do your job is it is a brutal leadership mirror. Because whatever happens consistently, you are the only common denominator good or bad, and I learn to deeply appreciate nonconformity. When I am in groups that look too much like me, or that I'm starting to talk like them, or I feel that I'm assimilating in any way, I, I have developed an organic allergic reaction. And I extract myself from that group. I minimize my participation. I go somewhere where I am more different, so I am uncomfortable. And in some ways, I feel that I belong everywhere. And in some ways, I feel a little bit that I belong nowhere. And I'm OK with that. That discomfort, we hear all those quotes about you know, growth begins at the end of your comfort zone. Courage only happens if you are in unfamiliar circumstances on a regular basis or compelled by crisis. And I'd rather not have to be compelled by crisis. I'd rather build by muscle by constantly investing my time, energy, and resources in diverse scenarios. I work in big corporate America, big commercial brands, but I actually personally invest in the future of food and everything that will transform the world's health through food. I work with franchises in Wall Street, but I invest in early stage startups and mentor founders. I ran Hooters, but I invested in women's organizations. I ran Cinnabon, but focused on the future of food and health. Those things are not in conflict at all. They make me the best person to be doing all of those things because I can bring unique perspectives and my people and my teams deserve it. Being a serial nonconformist is an incredibly important approach 
to leadership. And when that is your expectation, not many things feel disruptive. It's just the normal pace of change. Just one question. What, what actually puts you under enormous amount of pressure? And mm. um, how do you deal with it generally? So probably like most of you, the main pressure is, I, I would say two things, prioritizing short and long term. That's so oversimplifying, but that is at the heart of all leadership challenges in business. Um, so prioritizing short and long term creates tension. And the goal is to have it be a healthy tension, but sometimes it's not. And then time and energy. You know, there are so many things. I have an eight-month-old at home. I have a husband I love spending time with. We're trying to acquire businesses right now. I love speaking and investing my time with smart people. And, you know, there are only so many hours in the day. And that definitely creates pressure. And so the solution for the pressure, how do you let the air out of that balloon, is prioritization, being rooted in my values, and actually the two lessons I'll, I'll end on. Um, one is I have a process that I just call checking in. Uh, my husband and I, every month, do a monthly check-in. And we ask ourselves eight to ten questions every month on our month anniversary, the day we met. We've done this since the beginning. If you haven't done it and you started, I know it can be a little scary. Um, but the questions are things like, in the last 30 days, what's one thing I could do differently to be a better partner for you? What's been the best and the worst? What has been your biggest worry? What's your biggest gratitude? Things like that. And it's a safe space to have those discussions, just like we would with our employees. Why would we put more energy into development of our business relationships than our personal relationships? And so having a strong foundation at home allows me to deal very thoughtfully with pressures. And I'm also very clear what's my number one priority, my health, my husband, my child. Everything else is such a distant second, and everybody knows it. And man, that makes things easy. <laughs> you know, no one's confused where they sit in my uh, value chain. And so that's one, this concept of checking in. You just stay close. You don't have to wonder what's going on. It's, it can be painful and scary, but it just keeps things moving and progressing. You're constantly not conforming. You're constantly moving. And the other is the hotshot rule. Um, the hotshot rule is something I share quite a bit, and it's simply this. I imagine, I close my eyes for a few moments. I do this monthly. I imagine tomorrow there is a hot shot in my seat, in my job, in my role. Sometimes I think of this as the role of, my, of being a wife. Sometimes I think of it as being a leader or a community member. There's a hot shot. You, you decide what a hot shot is. Someone with complete awesomeness and badassery and everything that is required. Put together a Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head of every awesome leader you've ever met, and that person is in your seat tomorrow. And ask yourself this question, what is one thing, only one, and the first thing they would immediately do? Because when they take over your job on the first day, that is the worst it will ever be in their mind. But to you, it's better than it was three years ago. It's better than it was 10 years ago. We're blinded by our own progress. And so by playing the hotshot rule, instead of feeling the pressure that many of us feel because we know there are things we should be getting at. And they just kind of pile up and either we procrastinate or something is urgent or important but not urgent, you know, that whole quadrant, whatever it is. And we, we can feel it piling up and it creates pressure. But playing the hot shot rule busts all of that up and shines a bright light on the one thing you objectively acknowledge is ridiculous that you aren't handling it today. But then, so that's humility to acknowledge, then courage to take action. I take action on that one thing immediately. I pick up the phone, I book the flight, I fire the person, I hire the person, I say I'm sorry, I say thank you, whatever it is. And then I go to my team or whoever's involved and I tell them what I did. The power of reflection 
intention and action allows pressure to be minimized, values to be clear, priorities to be clear, and action to yield results. And all of this leads to driving personal and professional and business and community and maybe even country or culture transformation. And my mom always says, don't forget where you came from, but don't you dare ever let it solely define you. And I think that's so the crux of this whole discussion. Honor our roots, but don't let them be our anchors, personally or professionally, and use those roots more as an engine. Keep one foot there, but sometimes the very thing you need to do to honor your roots is to grow out of them. And uh, I, I hope this has been a, a helpful discussion for all of the industries you're involved in. Thank you very much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.